Our Father, we are your people, and we are gathered here to receive from you. We know that the only posture we can ever be in with you is that of receiving. And so we come not as philosophers to exchange ideas with you, but as beggars needing desperately for you to have mercy on us. So help us, Father. Minister to your people now. Grant me the fullness of your spirit so that you may deliver faith to your people. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, okay. Our text today comes from Exodus chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me. If you don't, uh, Matt and someone else is going to jump up and um, offer you one of these Bibles. Uh, So please raise your hand if you need one. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to have to make a wardrobe adjustment here. This, uh, this cord is bugging me. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 4. Here's God's words. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in addition to the scripture reading, let's read together this week's question and answer, which coincidentally happens to be last week's question and answer. We're spending three weeks on this one question and answer. So we'll read together the question and then the answer. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and works. Now notice in the explanation of what God requires in the second commandment, well, you heard it, uh, that there are two parts to avoid. Number one is idolatry, and then the second is that we worship God properly, to put it positively. Now, I dealt with idolatry last week in the first commandment, so today we're going to look at what does it mean to worship God according to the means that he himself has given us. In order to consider that, uh, let me begin by telling you a story that comes from Leviticus 10. Now, Leviticus, as you'll know if you've read it, has to do with the proper worship of God. The key theme in that book is the holiness of God. Holiness, of course, being that God is in a separate category than anything else. Nothing compares with him. There's nothing you can put in his category. He is holy and therefore ultimately separate. And so Leviticus is about the provision God makes for his people to worship him. It solves a problem because the problem is that holiness, the holiness of God is deadly to people who are not uh, just as holy as he is, which happens to be everyone. And so it's not like he's mean or it's some fault of his, um, but if you go into his presence as an unholy creature, you are dead, consumed. And it's not 
like I said, it's not because he's mean. It's like if a moth flies into a flame, it's going to combust because they are two opposite substances and the flame just happens to be more powerful and more overwhelming. So um, it's just a, uh, a function of their respective properties. So if God is going to dwell among his people, he has a problem to solve, namely, how do I not make them all into moths that explode when I come near? And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. So he provides them with instructions to atone for their sins, and it is Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons who are responsible for this. They become the priests. So let's get into the story. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, you remember them? Yeah, oh, good, good. Um, I was expecting no, good, yes. Um, so they're two of four of Aaron's sons. Now Aaron is the high priest, high priest and his sons are the priests. Now, after nine chapters of detailed instructions about how to worship the Most High God without being consumed by him, Nadab and Abihu uh, come into the story. And it says that they each took their censer. And if you don't know what a censer is, it's, um, it's a thing that they burn incense in. And uh, in the Catholic Church, and the Orthodox Church, they still use these things. It's on a chain, and there's something down here, and they create the smoke with it, and they swing it around. You, you've seen these. Okay, so they take their censers, and it says... Uh, that they laid incense in it. So far, so good. This is something that they were instructed to do by God. And something went fatally wrong. Instead of lighting the incense from the fire that was on the altar, which is where God said to light it, they lit it with what is called in the text unauthorized fire. Or if you're a King James man, King James woman, strange fire. Now, for this folly, they were killed. All right, so, um, so we don't know where they got these coals from. Maybe they got them from their home stash. I don't know where they got the fire to light their incense, but they did not get it from the appointed place that God told them to get it. Now, for us, it's like not a big deal, right? I mean, come on. The, isn't the important thing that the fire is lit? That should be the important thing, right? Uh, okay, so, I mean, it's direct disobedience of God's command, and that command happens to come in Exodus 30, verse 9. But they can't be expected to remember all those details, right? And not to mention God is kind and gracious and long-suffering. Well, the next verse, as you know if you've read the story, says that not only, I mean, it wasn't just they dropped dead. Fire came out of the tabernacle and consumed them. As if to say, you want to mess with fire here. And, and their bodies fell on the ground, and Aaron's uncles came and took them away. Now, why? Why? Um, the next verse tells us. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people... I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. So Aaron clearly was upset by this. Angry, hurt, scared, terrified. We're not told what, but we are told that he had to hold his peace. Now, um, what we see here is that um, Aaron felt like we probably feel as we listen to this story. Like, this is ridiculous. This is, 
This is crazy. How can God so swiftly destroy these men who at best made a mistake or who at worst disobeyed in such a minor way? Isn't the important thing that the worship of God would have gone on, that the smoke that he needs to, you know, isn't that the important thing? And the Lord says through Moses, no, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. Now this story has nothing overtly to do with idolatry as we see it in the second commandment. So when we're talking about the second commandment's prohibition against making images, why start here? Well, I start here because I want you to take note of how you feel instinctively when you hear this story. What reaction do you have in your chest? Is it what I just said? I mean, there there may be a few of us out there who are like, yes and amen. Praise God. Uh, I would say most of us, if you're anything like me, go, man, calm down. This is crazy. And so I want you, whatever your experience is, I'm guessing it isn't positive. And so the point of this story is that God is holy and that he provides laws about exactly how to approach him and exactly how to worship him. And any violation in his eyes is a huge deal. So I start with a story because the second commandment has to do with the right worship of God. And we have to know right from the outset that the Lord is deadly earnest about what he says here. And I have to emphasize this because our natural inclinations about worshiping God are anything, are essentially that anything is permissible um, just so long as it is sincere. For all we know, Nadab and Abihu were as sincere of worshipers as you could ever meet. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. There's, there's sort of a thrust that says they were presumptuous and they did this because they just assumed it wouldn't matter. But it doesn't say that. They could have been exceedingly sincere. We don't know. Um, but the important thing is that they paid for that error with their lives. Okay, so last week we talked about worshiping the one God. So today, as we consider the second commandment, we're talking about worshiping the one God rightly. Okay? And in a nutshell, here it is. You shall not make or worship images of the one true God. You shall not make or worship images of the one true God. Now, the commandment itself, as I read it, I think can be broken down into uh, three parts. So first of all, the prohibition Secondly, the reason for the prohibition. And then thirdly, the promises that are attending the prohibition. Okay, so first of all, the prohibition. Now, the first part of the prohibition is against making carved images. Notice in um, verse 4 here. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not make for yourself The second part is against worshiping his images. Secondly, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then, just in case um, these words like, uh, um, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, in case those are um, vague, he then fills out the third extent of the prohibition. So don't make anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So if you can think of something outside of those categories, I think you're safe. But I don't think we can. So taken together, we essentially have the following. We are forbidden to make and worship any 
and every image of God. And God is emphatic. I will not be represented by any created thing. And my people must not worship me so. So we can't worship God through images. Now, this doesn't seem all that relevant to us, right? We're good on this one. This is a commandment aimed at people who live in the midst of a polytheistic culture who bow down uh, to statues of stone, statues of wood. It has nothing to do with us, right? Well, I wouldn't be so sure. I doubt if anybody, anybody has in their pockets today wooden idols to represent God or you go home and you have a little uh, shrine with statues in it. Maybe you do, I don't know. But I would guess not because that's simply not our culture. Okay? J- just culturally speaking, that's not who we are. Um, but I would say it seems to me that we are every bit as tempted to make our own mental models of God which aren't represented by statues, but, but are every bit as real and direct every bit of uh, our behavior as do the little wooden statues. Here's what I mean. Every Monday on my route to work, I pass by a church that has a large sign out by the street. That's like a banner. And what it says is, Jesus didn't reject people, neither do we. Jesus didn't reject people, and neither do we. Now, um, in my head, as I see that every Monday as I pass it, I get a little sassy, and I'm like, have you even read the Gospels? Like, there's whole chapters about the words of Jesus himself. This is not people talking about Jesus. Of Jesus himself saying, in the end, uh, everybody will come before me, and uh, there'll be sheep and there'll be goats, and I will say to the sheep, you come to my right hand into everlasting joy, and I'll say to the goats, I never knew you. Go into my left into everlasting destruction. Sounds like rejection. He rejected the Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers and one click higher, sons of hell. Um, what else? He, he rejected the rich young ruler by saying his obedience to the law wasn't complete, and the man went away sad. That's a rejection. Jesus cursed the religious establishment by cursing the fig tree, which was their national or organizational symbol. Like, Jesus is rejecting people all over the place in the Gospels. So it's categorically wrong and untrue to say that Jesus didn't reject people. But if I had to guess, if I had to guess, I think this is what they're saying in that sign. Something like this. That Jesus rejected the kinds of people that we reject, namely the powerful, the rich, the oppressors. But he embraced the kinds of people that we embrace, the marginal, the minority, and the oppressed. I think that's what they're trying to say in that sign. Now, I don't have to tell you the kinds of people that this church is concerned about not rejecting. You know who it is. And I applaud them for essentially doing what we should all be doing, which is creating uh, congregations of hospitality that welcome anyone. Yes, for sure. But... There is a mental model of Jesus here, an image that it seems to me is a violation of the second commandment. There Jesus is all love and no judgment, all embrace and no rejection, all 
acceptance, and never contradiction. This is not the Jesus that we meet in the pages of Scripture. And so to embrace such an image is to do violence to who he really is and to degrade by, by, um, uh, as a result our capacity to worship. Now, we're all susceptible to this. I mean, haven't we all caught ourselves at some point saying something with the words that begin like, the sentence that begins with the words, my God would never dot, dot, dot. What is it? My God would never send people to hell. My God would never accept someone like that. My, whatever, okay? Um, my U.S. history students sometimes come into uncomfortable contact with, in the, in the, with this particular truth because um, when we get to the Great Awakening in the 1730s, I have them read Jonathan Edwards' Uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you've ever read this, or you remember the portion of it you read in, you know, 10th grade English, um, you'll know that this, I mean, this is a powerful and effective and stark and horrifying image of what the wrath of God looks like, and it's terrifying. And so when I meet to discuss it with them, I often hear some version of, well, my God would never Dot, dot, dot. But what this commandment is trying to save us from is that very statement. It's trying to save us from worshiping a God of our own creation. I'm going to say that again. This commandment is trying to save us from worshiping a God of our own creation. It invites us into the mystery of who God is. God is incomprehensible except for what he reveals to us. If he does not want some part of himself to be known, we cannot find it out by deductive logic or experimental science. We cannot figure it out. He's only known by what he reveals of himself. And it creates the occasion for us to bow our knee to him and say, your ways are higher than my ways. You are inscrutable. I only know you because you reveal yourself to me. And it's like that novel in the movies, The Stepford Wives, in which the men... Of, their, uh, of this certain town called Stepford, um, kill their wives, and I'm sorry, I'm ruining this for everybody, uh, kill their wives and turn them, uh, essentially make robot duplicates of them who are perfectly, um, they're exceedingly beautiful and they, they do nothing but the will of their husband. And so what, what could be better than that, right? What could be better than a wife who does nothing except bow to her husband's will. Except if you've read the book or if you've seen the movies, you know that 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 very thing, having a wife made in your own image, turns these men into the worst kind of men. It degrades the husband just like it degrades the people who worship a God of their own making. It makes these men selfish, murderous, and diabolical. So by enacting this commandment, God is saving us from ourselves. He, he will be worshipped in the manner that he chooses and not the manner that we choose. And when we find that we lay down our images of God, our preconceived notions about what he must do or what he mustn't do or be, then we will find that our love for him increases and our humanity flourishes. Okay, so that's the prohibition. Now, Here's the reason for that prohibition. It, it doesn't just come out of thin air. 
There is a reason for this, and it happens to come to us right in the commandment. So, um, here it is. It says, you're not to make gods, you're not to make images of anything, or make anything in any likeness, heaven above, earth below, etc. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Now, what does it mean that God is jealous? We almost, in our culture, use this word exclusively in a negative fashion. You know, somebody else gets a promotion, and it's like, oh, I'm jealous, I wish I had that, or he gets a car, or whatever. It's almost exclusively negative for us, but not so in the Scripture. That's not what it means for God to be jealous. Jealousy in a covenant relationship really comes down to one party saying to another, I will not share you. And that's what we say in marriage. That's what we say in our wedding vows. We, we vow to one another, I will not share you. Now, doesn't mean you don't have friends and you know, all that. I, but it means, it means as a husband, you don't share your wife with another man. It means as a wife, you don't share your husband with another woman. That's what it means to be jealous. And if that is violated, the husband or the wife is right to say, you owe me all of your affection. You promised it to me, just as we said last week. And that jealousy is right, isn't it? That jealousy is right. So this is the jealousy of God. Now, um, everywhere in the Old Testament, God's jealousy is associated with his glory. That's the key distinction to make, or the key connection. That, that jealousy is almost everywhere associated with God's glory. And the jealousy is provoked when the glory is eclipsed. When the aperture shuts and you can no longer, through whatever, through idol worship, through sin or whatever, you can no longer see him. He is no longer being revealed in all of his fullness. That's what sparks his jealousy. We see it in Isaiah 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will give my glory to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I will not share my glory with anyone, with any idol, with any other God. Now, what is God's glory? We've said this here before. You can go listen to those messages. But essentially, God's glory is the essence of who he is. We see this in the Psalms. David talks about his own glory. He's like, awake my glory and sing to the Lord. Play on the harp and the lyre. He, it's, it's the essence of who somebody is. Okay, so we talk um, often about God's goodness and his mercy and his justice and his grace and all the rest of his attributes, but you put them all together, and what you have is God's glory, the essence of who he is. And so here we have the reason why he so sternly warns against images, because every image of God, and this is important, so this is important, every image of God conceals part of his glory. It removes something of his essence from being revealed to his people. So, for example, um, by creating an image, by, by creating an image, I am lying about the fact that God is uncreated. If I represent God by a created image, I'm lying about the fact that he is uncreated. By creating an image that exists in only one point in space, which... By definition, it must. I am lying about God's omnipresence. He is everywhere, not located in one spot. By creating an image that cannot speak 
or contradict me. I am lying about the God who speaks to his people. And on and on and on through all of his attributes. There's simply no way to represent him fully with created material. And any contraction of the glory, any of it, provokes his jealousy. Now, someone who is well-versed in art history in here, I don't know if you exist in here, but if you do, you might say, ah, what about the Christ Pancrator? You know this one? It's a, it's a Greek Orthodox, or maybe it's Russian Orthodox, it's Orthodox regardless, icon. It's a painting of Christ. It's his, and if you've ever seen Greek Orthodox iconography, you know what the face looks like. And there's the halo around the head. And it's, it's just the face of Christ. And when you first look at this, something strikes you as strange. You can't quite put your finger on why his face looks so strange because it's very subtle until you cover up one side of his face and you cover up the other side of his face. And what you notice is that one side of his face is tender and soft and full of mercy and kindness. But the other side of his face is harsh and stern and full of judgment. And so when you back up and you see the whole thing, it's like, oh, okay, well, there, they got it, right? There's mercy and judgment all on one face, nothing eclipsed, right? Well, no. Because what this painting is telling us is that he is half mercy and half judgment when the scriptures testify that he is all mercy and all judgment, all of his attributes, he is all love, he is all kindness, he is all justice. There are no pieces of the pie when it comes to who he is. And so this lies about Christ's character. Now, he says to us, I will not share my glory with that God of your making. That is not who I am, and I intend to give myself to you. That is so important. The, the one thing, if, if the one thing that we know for sure, I shouldn't say it that way, we know for sure that God has promised to give us himself. And that that is our highest treasure and our highest glory. The pearl of great price that we would sell everything for. He has promised to give us himself. And this is why he gives us this commandment. Because he cannot give us himself if we are constantly bringing the aperture in on his glory. Now, he may come in and knock down all the fences. He may. He's capable of it. But I don't know of many cases where he does. In fact, I don't know of any. Okay, so this has practical benefit to us. To worship a God of our own making, be it a block of wood or some kind of mental model of who God is, means practically that we experience the withering of our own personhood. Why? Because we become like what we worship. If there's anything in the scriptures that's true, it's that. We become like the objects of our worship. To worship a God who thinks exactly like us, loves what we love, would vote for whom we would vote, accepts the same people we accept, and rejects the same people we reject. To worship a God like this means that we will never be contradicted and therefore never have an occasion for growth into something new and into something better. And so the part in us that is intolerable to the bulk of our friends and the bulk of our family that we may not even know about, that little thing will never have the occasion to be challenged because our God is mute 
on such things. So God is jealous of his glory, and we do well not to provoke him to jealousy by our images, which means practically that we must always remain open to correction by his word. We, we cannot help but make some sort of mental model of who he is. That We have imaginations. God made us in his image, and we are We are creative beings. We can't help but do that. But it must always be open to correction from the scriptures. That's what he's telling us. Okay? Now, um, I I often tell my students that about a third of all I say and all that I believe is hopelessly flawed. I just don't know which third it is. So that means I'm, I'm always open to correction. But all that I do believe, I'm going to believe with, with strength and with all my power because I I don't know which third it is that's flawed, but, but to have that kind, of, um, that kind of posture for me is like, okay, well, I know I'm wrong somewhere. It's, it just comes with the territory of being human, so Lord, you're going to have to show it to me. You're going to have to show it to me. Now, somebody might have a question at this point. Um, if we are not to make images of the Most High God... How are we to know him and to worship him? Given that we are very visual people, given that we are uh, creative people, how are we to know him and to worship him? Well, Moses tells us, as he's reviewing these commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he tells the people this. He says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How, listen, on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Here it is. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. You saw no form. You only heard a voice. Don't ask me why, but God has chosen to reveal himself to his people through words and not images. Through words. Which is why we spend like 40 minutes every Sunday preaching here, as I said in the beginning, like this is why we do this. Maybe we should do it for two hours if that's that important. I don't know, but nobody would be here. But still, like it's that important. These are God's very words, and this is how he has chosen to reveal himself by taking this book and making it known to his people. It is through his words. Okay, so that's the reason for his um, prohibition. He's jealous. Don't make images. Provokes jealousy. It eclipses glory. Now, thirdly, the promises associated with the prohibition. Here's where God tells us the consequences, both the positive and the negative, for either keeping or violating the commandment. 
Verse 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, here it is, visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, first of all, I just want you to notice that God interprets image making as hatred. He says, um, visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So if we find ourselves not attributing too much significance to this commandment, God does not share our laxity. And it could be that this is one of those places where we must remain open to correction in our image of God. He takes this very seriously, just like he took it very seriously with Nadab and Abihu. And we go, what? If that's the case, then there might be a flaw in how we consider the Most High God and what we do when we think of his glory or his holiness. And therefore, our humanity is being contracted. And so, um, he says, this is a huge deal. Those who worship images of me hate me. And so, it degrades the worshiper it so degrades the worshiper that it says he will visit the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't say that I will damn the children to the third and fourth generation. Like if the fathers turn out to be idolaters, well, you know, sorry for three or four generations. Then they get a new chance. No, it says he will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. And we all know what this means. We, we live in this world. We all have fathers. We all have mothers. We understand what that means. Some of you have in, your, in the very coding of your DNA a propensity towards alcoholism because of your father or because of your mother. Like that's, there are consequences, he is saying, to worshiping images of God, to worshiping our own models of God and not who he is. But let's hasten to um, the other promise. For those who worship me as I am, God says, I will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. Now, we all know the problem here. I mean, this is a marvelous thing to say. But who of us has kept this commandment? Who of us has not broken it? from the moment we could actually conceive of who God was until this very moment. And that, if that's the case, then God has promised to visit us in wrath and uphold his glory. We have all been guilty of diminishing or concealing the glory of God because we worship him as we hope he is or we demand that he is. Therefore, all of us fall under the category of those who hate him. Now, it may surprise you with all this image talk to remember the words of Genesis chapter 1. On the sixth day, God creates humanity, and he says, let us make man in our image. In our likeness, let us create them male and female. Now that is a remarkable thing. 
Those, both of those words, image, likeness, both show up in the second commandment. You shall not make, ima- you not make any image or the likeness of anything. But in the beginning, God made humanity in his image and according to his likeness. So here's what's astonishing. God is not actually opposed to being represented by an image so long as it is the image of his choosing. So consider for a moment the person sitting next to you was created in the image of God. The God who furiously bans all other images set his goodness and his kindness and his steadfast love and his wisdom and his glory on display in each of us. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. He put his glory on display to the world through your neighbor. But we all know, don't we, that the serpent came into the garden and lied to Eve and said, no, no, you're not thinking about God right. He's He's withholding from you. He, he's, he's, he doesn't want you to know what he knows because he's hungry to keep his own power. And so the first moment of idolatry where an image of God that was not true entered into the head of humanity and she ate and she died. And Adam ate with her and he died. And so for all of human history, the image of God since that moment has been shipwrecked and desecrated and bankrupt. Now, humans are the image of God, and for all of history, we've been living with this tension that we are the image of God, but that this image, by virtue of its sin, was eclipsing some part of God's glory and was therefore a lie about who he is. And so Jesus, our Savior, was born of a woman into the image of humanity. And Paul says in Colossians that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And images, as we all know, are made for worship. Well, God sent his own image in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it is through Jesus that we may know and worship the Most High God. Because Jesus was born of a woman, um, by God, and therefore shared no stain of original sin, that ancient iniquity that was visited upon all the generations of the fathers, passed down, uh, because nobody actually got out of the cycle, so third and fourth generation, at least there was some hope to get out of it, but nobody ever got out of the cycle of passing on sin to their sons and daughters, and them passing passing it on to them and their daughters. And so he was born a new and perfect image of God. And all of God's love was displayed in Jesus. And all of God's kindness was displayed in Jesus. And all of God's justice was displayed in Jesus. And that is how we get that magnificent verse in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see in the face of Jesus Christ the light of God's glory, the essence of who he is, the perfect image of God. Now in the commandment, it says that God has steadfast love stored up for thousands of those who love him. But if we are all in the category 
by nature of those who hate him and deserve his judgment? How large must the storehouse of God's steadfast love be if he has reserved it for only one man, Jesus Christ? He is the only one who has earned this. He kept the second commandment without fail. He kept all the commandments without fail. And so all of God's steadfast love, which was meant to be distributed and scattered among all of us, if we could talk about it that way, was all stored up in this one man and poured out upon him. And as he went to Calvary, and as he died, he was dying and receiving in his own body the penalty for our own idolatry. The hatred that has been stored up for generations and generations and generations. The wrath that has been stored up for all of us. We all, how much wrath would we all, how much jealousy would we all and all the people in the history of the world have provoked in God's heart for their idol worship? How much? I don't know. Can we quantify it? But we do know that every ounce of that wrath was absorbed into the body of Jesus. And he was broken and judged and condemned and killed and made the very image, not of God, but of sin. And he did that for us. So that... For those of us who believe in his name for the forgiveness of sins, we are now remade into the image of Christ. And we stand as inheritors and recipients of all the storehouse of God's love that he has stored up for all the generations and given to Jesus Christ. That's what the commandment is there for. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not worship false gods. Let us not worship the true God wrongly, but let us worship him and come to him in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, um, we come to this table as we do every week, and I've often said to the Lord, because I I don't know if anybody's like this, but I am very tactile. I'm I'm a touch person. I need to... I need to feel something. I need to touch it. I need to talk to it. And I've often told the Lord in my times with him in the morning, like, it would be so helpful if, if you were just sitting there in the chair and I could speak to you. And you could speak to me as I speak to my friends or my wife or my children. I, why? Why don't you give that to me? And, and I don't know the fullness of that answer except that one day we will. One day it says that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sun, nor will there be any moon. But the light of that great city will be the face of the Lamb. We shall see his glory. We will enter into it. It will be surrounding us, and we will eat with him. And we will be physically with him. But until that day, he has not left us without something physical, something to touch, something to taste, something to ingest. He has brought us to this table and given us this meal, the bread and the cup to say, take this into your body. Let it metabolize into your cells because that's what my love is like and that's what my forgiveness is like and that's what my glory is like. 
it goes in and it disperses everywhere. It leaves nothing untouched. And so, if you are a son or daughter of God, you will call upon Jesus Christ um, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is, this is your meal, and you are invited to come. If not, what are you waiting for? He calls to you now. He calls to you today. He says, come to the table. He says, believe in me. Your sins, though they are scarlet, shall be as white as snow. What keeps you from believing? Well, let us pray. Our Father, thank you for your goodness to us today. Thank you for your word. We, our hearts do long for the day when we shall see you. Why it is that you've kept us for so long without, without some kind of image of you, without some kind of physical representation of you, we'll never know. But you are wise, and we trust that. But awaken our hearts, Father, please, awaken our hearts full of desire so that we can long for that day. And in that sickness, that homesickness, we would learn to worship you as you are and not as we wish you to be. So we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are welcome.